Amelia Ana Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Cloud computing enables sharing resources between an organization or with entities outside an organization. Multi-tenancy helps enable this. Tasha Drew, product line manager at VMware and co-chair of the Kubernetes multi-tenancy group, explained what multi-tenancy is. We talked about the benefits of multi-tenancy and how it relates to Kubernetes. Tasha also explained scenarios where it is being used. I'm here at KubeCon in Barcelona with Tasha Drew, product line manager at VMware and also co-chair of the Kubernetes multi-tenancy working group. Tasha, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. We are going to be talking about multi-tenancy in general and then in the Kubernetes space. First, I want to begin with understanding some terminology. We're talking about multi-tenancy. In software development, what does the term tenant mean? Sure. That's actually a really funny question because it's more complicated than you might think, and it can be a little controversial in Kubernetes. So when we're talking about tenancy in general, we're talking about having multiple users of a system. So a tenant could be a user, it could be a workload, it could be a combination of things. Um, but the idea with multi-tenancy is simply something is sharing a resource. And how do we portion the available resources to those multiple entities? And why are tenants needed? And why do we need this sharing of resources? Yeah, so it depends on what problem you're trying to solve. So in Kubernetes, for example, we have multi-tenancy when people want to share Kubernetes clusters. In Istio, we have multi-tenancy when you have um, multiple systems using the same service mesh. So this idea of just sharing and then how can we share uh, crosses a lot of different products and boundaries. The reason people want to share these different systems is often related to either how they are breaking up workloads or access to services. So in Kubernetes, for example, people want to have multi-tenancy often because they are standing up a Kubernetes cluster that's going to be shared between multiple teams or multiple departments or multiple applications. And then more externally facing companies who are using Kubernetes are going to have multiple customers potentially on the same cluster. And so they want to know how they can have like really good boundaries around that and how can they make sure that the resources are going to who they want them to go to. People can't escape whatever boundaries being set up. And so a lot of people use that namespace boundary as their primary boundary, but that may not be enough because you have to be able to have networking isolation, compute isolation, storage isolation. So that's how tenancy can become a bigger and bigger and more complex problem to manage. And for those that aren't really familiar with this space, I know I did shows, intro shows on cloud computing, but can you just clarify, for example, what is cluster? Yeah, so uh, specifically what I'm working on is uh, Kubernetes clusters. And so just thinking about how people are using those clusters. So if I'm standing, do you want me to talk about exactly like what you would be doing with Kubernetes? Yeah, or just like what is a cluster? Is it a set of machines? Just sort of what it means, the cluster. Yeah, so when we're talking about a cluster, we're talking about um, 
multiple machines and nodes. So from our perspective in Kubernetes, you have control plane nodes, you have worker nodes, and all of those nodes together are managing you know, workloads on top of them. So as a group of these machines, we want of these nodes, um, which are then on machines, we want to know how are we going to be dividing the resources that those nodes have access to. And what would be an example of a workload? So a workload in this case could be an application. It could be a data service. So workload isn't necessarily a tightly defined term here. It's simply something that's using up capacity on that cluster. And what are specific or unique scenarios where you would need multi-tenancy? So some of the popular multi-tenancy use cases are dividing a cluster between departments in the same company. So we have uh, two kinds of multi-tenancy that we talk about. We talk about soft multi-tenancy and then we talk about hard multi-tenancy. And when we're talking about those two types of multi-tenancy, the real difference is isolation capabilities. So in soft multi-tenancy, we assume a basic level of trust. So we can sort of trust the users of this system to not be bad actors, they have some incentive to make them good actors on the system. So perhaps a little more sharing of resources, perhaps allowing those users to access something like the Kubernetes API server is acceptable in a soft multi-tenant situation. In hard multi-tenancy, we assume zero trust. And so that becomes a significantly harder engineering problem. And this is a point of debate within the multi-tenancy working group. Um, what we're trending to right now is hard multi-tenancy should be achieved but you could still have a shared API server. You would simply really want to restrict how people can access that to install their services. But some people say that in hard multi-tenancy, there should be no access to the API server at all. And in soft multi-tenancy, you say there's some level of trust. Is this in general always oh, just different organizations within the same company or can it also be like a soft multi-tenancy across companies? Exactly. Yeah. So I think what it really comes down to with soft multi-tenancy is what you're allowing the user, those multiple tenants to do. So you could use soft multi-tenancy to restrict access within a Kubernetes cluster and in which you were sharing services with external parties if they, for example, had no access to the Kubernetes API. There would be a way for you to restrict that cluster down so that you could feel confident doing that in a soft multi-tenancy model. But if you wanted those users to be able to directly interact with the Kubernetes API, you would probably want to have a hard multi-tenancy model where there was no way that they could adversely impact each other because you just don't have the right level of trust for them to be taking that specific action. So we normally think of soft multi-tenancy as people who are incentivized to have some sort of, to behave as good actors because they are probably like employed by the people who are running that cluster. So if they took adverse actions, they would be harming their coworkers, and they would get fired. So that's normally the pattern we see, we think about. But on the other hand, there are people who are running clusters in a soft multi-tenancy model. And the way that they're doing that for external users is simply no access to the API server. I see. And then in terms of the hard multi-tenancy, what are the types of users? Is it um, people from different companies or like consumers and why do we have this? So just to be clear, we don't have it. <laughs> it's oh. a dream. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it doesn't exist. Well, sort of what is the motivation for that yeah. dream? 
Yeah, so the motivation would simply be, you know, a couple different examples. I want to provide Kubernetes as a service within a Kubernetes cluster to external users. How could I do that? Um, and, you know, arguably, it's arguable if that's something uh, that the world really needs, but that's just like an easy example to give because you would be thinking about, okay, I want them to be able to install CRDs. Here are all the tasks they need to do. They need access to the API server. Is there a way to restrict a Kubernetes cluster in such a way that I can provide API server access, storage, networking, completely cordoned off from other users in a very secure manner? Would this make it cheaper for more people to use these technologies? Yeah, yeah. So if I don't have to spin up a control plane for each of my customers, then that's a lot less compute, right? So I have less cluster sprawl, basically. Another use case is someone who's providing software as a service in which users need access to the Kubernetes API. And we call this like the Coke Pepsi model of multi-tenancy. But these customers are potentially, you know, competitive with each other. And you they would not want the other person to be able to see anything that they're doing. But you want to host them on the same cluster because you want those efficiency gains. When I was researching for this interview, I saw Kubernetes does not support multi-tenancy. But we're talking about how Fundamental it is, particularly for organizations, right? And since Kubernetes doesn't support it, people are building their own um, multi-tenant solutions. What do those multi-tenant solutions sort of, what is needed to support multi-tenancy? Yeah, so there's a lot of really great work going on and, you know, I definitely invite people to check out the multi-tenancy working group. You can check it out. We have a Google group that you can join where you'll get invited to all of our meetings. We have all of our videos are on YouTube if you'd like to kind of see what we've been up to. And a lot of our documentation is available in our GitHub repository under the SIG repository. So if you go to kubernetes-sig slash multi-tenancy, you can see all of the information about what we've been working on. Sort of what that entails, what it so we've had a lot of really good presentations on that recently. And what we've seen is that some people try to create a tenant CRD. So for example, Mike Arpea, he developed a tenancy CRD that he presented at KubeCon, I think a year ago. And from that, our community of users is now uh, led by Easeway, who from Google has been working on a tenant CRD that is open um, on our GitHub repository for comments and feedback. But it's basically just looking at how do we automate the creation of tenants when they are joining the cluster. And so one idea is to develop a CRD in Kubernetes to automate that lifecycle for cluster operators. What does CRD stand for? Cluster resource definition. Okay, I see. Yeah. So it's a way to automate the life cycle of a tool, basically. So yeah, so what a cluster resource definition can do is provide a custom resource definition. What it does, it provides a watch. So you can take specific behavior every time a user takes an action. So we're extending the Kubernetes API to take these actions every time someone wants to introduce a new tenant. So that's one project that's going on. We had a really great presentation from Alibaba last week about a project that they been working on, several engineers there have been working on, in which they have, at a really high level, uh, taken the Kubernetes master API and then introduced additional API servers so that they can chunk up what people have access to, but still have them all in one cluster. Um, so almost a nested control plane situation. And that looks really cool. Um, they're going to present on it for their upcoming meetings. We've also talked to a bunch of different companies and they come and they present like the different work that 
they're doing to achieve multi-tenancy in their cluster. And what we're learning from all of this is that people really want the same behavior. And so over time, what we're trending towards is like understanding the pattern better so that we can start to define what multi-tenancy should look like and then create a standard around it. I have put together a roadmap for the multi-tenancy working group in which what we're going to be doing is initially we are defining a secure cluster for a single tenant because that definition hasn't been formalized in Kubernetes. And then once we have a secure single tenant definition, we're going to do a secure multi-tenant, soft multi-tenant profile definition. Once we have both of those, we're going to provide them to the bug bounty program, the Kubernetes bug bounty program, which is a bunch of security researchers who are actively looking for vulnerabilities and security flaws in Kubernetes. Because we will have formalized the creation of the clusters, they will be able to aggressively test those to understand any loopholes or anything that we need to improve with those cluster definitions. And so then we'll take the improved cluster definitions and then submit them to be formalized by the Kubernetes community. Does that mean it'll be part of Kubernetes itself at some point? Yeah, so it would be like a cluster profile. So right now, when you are using Kubernetes, you run Kubernetes through conformance tests. And when you run them through conformance tests, what you're saying is, is this truly upstream Kubernetes? Those conformance tests do not currently allow for a secure, they don't have a secure profile for single tenant, and they don't have a multi-tenant profile at all. So that means that if you are trying to productize a Kubernetes cluster that needs to be multi-tenant, it will potentially fail conformance. And if it fails conformance, then you can't call your product Kubernetes. So what we're trying to do as a community is standardize upon an agreed profile and say this is a secure multi-tenant profile. We can then develop tools that will test your configuration to tell you if you've set it up in the defined secure multi-tenant manner. And we can also add a potentially a profile to the conformance test so that you could run conformance against your multi-tenant cluster and still pass conformance. I see. One thing I want to ask in terms of this, like you're saying, you're defining the roadmap and you're part of the multi-tenancy working group, which sounds like they're the ones working on a lot of these standards. Mm -hmm. What I've seen uh, from my experience in this space is we have Kubernetes and it's open source and there are other tools and layers that get built on top and you know those are not free. In your opinion, to what extent is something meant to be you know, in the open Kubernetes? ecosystem versus, you know, another layer that, you know, people pay for. Yeah. So for something like a multi-tenancy profile, I definitely think that belongs in the open source project. So this would simply be standardizing the way that everybody's approaching a common problem. And I think that's really where the line between proprietary and open source comes down to is a like, are we, if we went off and did our own multi-tenancy approach, which some companies have done, it's cool and it's useful, but it would be far more useful to have that standardized upon and included in the community because then we can all solve more interesting problems, right? Like, so there's this need that we all have. Why would we all spin off and solve that 17 different ways and then have potentially making it more complicated for us to contribute back to Kubernetes and like, you know, just having more space between us and the upstream project. So to me, that's kind of where it starts to break down. Like I would say really awesome reasons to have a proprietary 
proprietary product are you're running a service, you're adding something that doesn't belong in core Kubernetes, um, you're doing something very specific that is valuable, but maybe not universally interesting or needed by other people. Um, so kind of like looking at the addressable just market of what you're trying to achieve and then considering like what of this really belongs in like the almost infrastructure operating system cluster management tier that is Kubernetes and then what is more of a software that would be on top of that. I want to go back a little bit to the topic of hard multi-tenancy where we're really trying to separate users it sounds like and the things that they can do. One of the reasons that I saw is because we could have adversarial tenants. So we have people sharing, but yeah, some of them might have adversarial reasons. Can you talk about some of the things that could happen that those uh, users could do? to in exploit a system? Like what are some of the cases? Well, they could escape their Docker container, right? Like, and get into the machine underneath. They could, you know, potentially do some sort of denial of service attack to another tenant using many of the different tiers, uh, like overload the network, cause some sort of denial of service attack that means other people can't access their storage. So like just looking at how they might deny services to other people or how they might escape their own, like the base, like the tenancy object that you've placed them in, how could they escape that and then get access to some somebody else's private space like those are the sort of actor models that we're worried about and in sub multi-tenancy can something like this happen i know it, there's a lot of you know assumed trust like you mentioned in your employer and they can find out but could this be an issue there like if there's an employee that yeah, it could absolutely be an issue. So if I have a soft multi-tenant cluster, I think the biggest thing that you're sort of giving up is you're assuming that that user is not going to denial of service attack another user because you haven't necessarily locked down networking and storage and other ways that they could do that to the degree that you would want to in a hard multi-tenancy model. The In soft multi-tenancy, like... Today, we call everything that we have soft multi-tenancy because if you are giving multiple users access to the Kubernetes API, it's simply not locked down in a way that could prevent a lot of bad actor models. And so that's why we just call everything today soft multi-tenancy to sort of give that level of understanding that you're not getting this completely isolated multi-tenancy model that hard multi-tenancy implies. Earlier, you mentioned namespacing, and I know it's one of the core components to support multi-tenancy. Can you explain what this is referring to? Sure. So in Kubernetes, we have what we call namespaces. And what the namespaces are is they are isolated units within the cluster. And obviously, they're not completely isolated, but it's a way to separate different applications or users. And you can hang a policy off of these namespace creations. So one way to think of them is like a way to kind of carve out a sandbox for users. So you're saying, okay, user A, this is your sandbox, and these are the policies that surround this sandbox. And I could have storage policies, networking policies, compute policies, and they all apply to you. If you're using uh, operators or custom resource definitions on your cluster, you could call those within the namespace, and you can give at, you could run an operator within a namespace. So it's it's simply a way of carving out sort of a unit of space within a cluster that you can then have a lot of policies and other objects associated with. Within an application, it can be like 
we could just embed them now, but let's say we have an application, could be anything. What does that namespacing look like in specifics? Like, I don't know if you could just describe a, a scenario. So people use namespaces in very different ways, and there's no way that you have to use it. But a very popular way to use it is to have an application per namespace. So for example, I might have um, my PHP app in one namespace, and then my SQL server in a different namespace, and then my Cassandra server in another namespace. And then I can tell consuming services, okay, my PHP app, you're using the MySQL database, and you two namespaces can have ingress and egress for one another, but then my Cassandra database has no relationship with my application, and so I'm not going to allow them to talk to each other. And in terms of this, you also mentioned you could have hang policy. Oh yeah, there's multiple kinds of policies. So like I could set a storage policy, a networking policy, and so for a namespace. So I could say, uh, for example, this namespace can have access to my super, you know, my gold tier of storage, for example. And this other namespace is maybe a development namespace or maybe that department doesn't have access to gold storage, so they are using standard storage. And what would you say are the top benefits of having multi-tenancy in, in Kubernetes, like once we have it? Like what are the main reasons why we need this? The main reason to do it is because you want to share the cluster. So what we see a lot in enterprises is they might have very large Kubernetes clusters that potentially are on specialized hardware that they're providing as a service to other departments in their organization. And so having multi-tenancy more formalized means that they will be running this cluster in a very standard manner that definitely provides them these properties of multi-tenancy. They can test it, they can upgrade it, and they can then share that with all of their users. You're a product line manager at VMware. VMware is a company that works in software virtualization as well as cloud computing. Can you explain in more detail what VMware does? Sure. Uh, VMware came to everybody's attention for server virtualization. So they created a very powerful way to run bare metal machines on virtualized machines instead. And so what they've really been focused on uh, is uh, helping enterprises save money through virtualization. So it used to be back in the day, and some companies even do this, when you needed to deploy a new application or a new service, you bought a new physical server. And so what VMware software provides is the ability to say, instead of buying all of these servers and using almost none of their capacity, because if a, if a workload is on a single server and it uses up all that compute, you put it on a bigger server, right? Like, and so it's incredibly inefficient and it's not environmentally friendly to just have all of these servers running at like less than their full utilization. So VMware's whole strategy is take all of those servers and virtualize the physical infrastructure and then run all of these workloads over that, and then you can know exactly how much compute capacity, how much network, how much storage you have available, and you will save a ton of money. And that has been true for over a decade. And so now what we're working on is continuing to take that philosophy of virtualization and incredibly efficient workloads into cloud-native territory. So how do we do all of these things with Kubernetes, with Istio, with Service Mesh, and continue to just provide like an incredibly efficient enterprise platform for running all of those workloads? 
And you specifically work on vSphere. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what vSphere is? Yeah, uh, vSphere is a platform that allows you to manage all of your virtual infrastructure. So what we call our hypervisor is ESXi. So we have ESXi and then we have vCenter. And vCenter basically allows uh, VI admins to register all of their VMs on, and then apportion those out to different users. So it's a management platform that lets you manage huge numbers of VMs and storage with vSAN on top of all of your hardware. I see. And you mentioned, you know, at the beginning that VMware is essentially started as virtualizing bare metal. Then um, you later mentioned now we're shifting to do something similar in Kubernetes. For me, it's easier to understand like well, okay, the bare metal is being virtualized. But in, in the context of Kubernetes and cloud computing, what does that virtualization mean? Yeah, so as you know, people run Kubernetes on the cloud, on virtual machines, on bare metal, and often they have hybrid environments that they're taking care of as well. So when we think about this, we think about the next layer of incredibly efficient workload management. So it used to be I took a underutilized physical machine and then virtualized it, and then I'm running VMs on top of it. Let's take that to the next level. Now I'm running thousands of containers on top of all all of these VMs? How do I do that incredibly efficiently? How do I move some of these workloads to the cloud if I need to burst really fast? How do I just make sure that I'm always, always able to meet the needs of the workloads as they are potentially scaling at different times of the day or at different demands? But then also, how am I making sure that all of this is incredibly robust and efficient and production ready? One more question I had for you is, yeah, your product line manager, what does that role mean? Yeah, so a product manager is someone who, it's always funny to describe what a product manager is. I know it varies from company to company and from product to product, but from your experience. So a product manager, your role is to understand the market, understand technology trends, understand your customers very deeply, and then use all of this information along with, you know, the ideas and advice from really brilliant engineers that you work with to decide what is the most important thing for us to be building right now and then define that as a product. As you do that, you end up working with basically every division within your company, right? You need to understand what marketing is seeing. You need to understand what they need. You need to understand what sales needs. You need to understand what engineering's thinking about and technical debt um, and then uh, potential you know, I new ideas. You need to understand what your support team is seeing and what you know errors are coming up. And then you need to spend a ton of time with your customers. So it's a very cross-functional role and it's very interesting and dynamic. But you're right in that it does vary from company to company based on what people think the product manager should be. It also ends up uh, varying a lot depending on the what the CEO, what his background is. So if a CEO has a sales background or a product background or an engineering background, that will all impact how he understands understands product managers, and that will often impact how the product management role gets built out. And two components that you mentioned are understanding the market and understanding tech trends. What are some of the ways in which you do this? Honestly, people have been asking me recently how I stay on top of all of the stuff that's going on in Kubernetes all the time, because it's such an incredible, fast-moving ecosystem. And my best 
answer is honestly Twitter, which sounds kind of silly, but like I follow a bunch of people and they all tweet about Kubernetes and it keeps me very current, you know? Um, so I would say like, if you're using Twitter, just look at the people who are doing interesting work in the sort of sphere that you're interested in. Maybe make a list of them so you don't miss their content. And then that becomes a really great way to stay current when things are moving really fast. Well, Tasha, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It's been great talking to you. Awesome. So nice to see you. Thank you.